Hi, this is John Grisham. Welcome to this week's edition uh, book tour. I am in Doylestown, PA, uh, for a discussion tonight with my friend Lisa Scottolini. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today, I'm in the lovely town of Doylestown, PA, in Bucks County, and not too far from downtown Philly. My guest today is Lisa Scottolini, another recovering lawyer who found a way to sell some books, and lots of them. The bookstore is known as the Doylestown Bookshop. Its owner is Glenda Childs, and here she is. My name is Glenda Childs. I'm the owner of the bookstore, and I always like to say to um, all of you when you're here and I get you all together and can say it, thank you so much for supporting us. You all are amazing. We couldn't be here without you, so thank you so much. So in just a few minutes, John has invited Lisa Scottolini. be in conversation together. Lisa is another New York Times bestselling author, Edgar award-winning author of 28 novels. I'm going to read all of her numbers soon to you as well. Her latest one is One Perfect Lie. It is on the New York Times bestseller list over there. It's a thriller and it takes place in a small town in Pennsylvania. Um, Lisa has over 30 million copies of her books in print, published in over 36, 35 countries. Um, Lisa is a local girl, if I can say girl. She's a local Philadelphia girl. And um, she writes a weekly column for the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's called Chickwit, so certainly check it out. Um, so please welcome two amazing authors and two amazing people, Mr. John Grisham and Ms. Lisa Scottolini. Thank you. Uh, what I'd like to do, first of all, is to uh, chat with Glenda about the bookstore. Uh, we always try to get the, um, the history. Uh, how long has it been here? Why did you buy it? What were you thinking when you bought the bookstore? <laughs> And uh, so when was it founded? Um, it was, the bookstore has been here in this location for 19 years. I bought it five years ago from the original owner, Pat Gurney, who is here and has been here this afternoon helping us with this event. Yeah. yeah. Where's Pat? Back here. So what, did you have a background in book selling, publishing? No, I was in education. And we had moved a lot with my husband's work. And I knew I had always wanted to be a part of a community, and I love books. So it was a natural that uh, I could get a second career and own a bookstore. So how big is the store now? We are 8,000 square feet. It's a large store. We're general bookstore, adult and children. Yeah. And uh, how big is the staff? We have a staff of 17. They are um, the nicest, most knowledgeable booksellers um, and the most, yeah, thank you. It's true. It's true. Um, a favorite in our store, I think it's a favorite location of our customers, is that staff pick wall back there. Yeah. Did you, uh, do you have plans to expand? No, I feel like we have our hands How full. about constricting, um, <laughs> cutting back? No, no, no. It's, it's, not a, it's, at a, all it's a big back. bookstore for a small town. And, uh, it is. As I signed books this afternoon, you know, working like a dog, um, <laughs> it's really hard work signing books. Uh, but I was st- struck by how many of your, uh, the, the, the fans, the customers, love the store. And you see that in certain towns special locations where the fans are, the people, the readers, are extremely loyal and love the bookstore. And it's important, you know, a town with no bookstore is not really a town. It, it becomes the hub, the, the core, the soul of the bookstore, of the, of, the, of the whole town. So it's a lot to be said for that. And you have a gorgeous downtown uh, that I've walked around today, and it's a, a beautiful place to live. And people seem to be very proud to live here, which says a lot. Great store. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. So how many author events do you do per week? Oh, we do one or two. 
And then we also have book clubs. A um, lot of local authors. It's a very um, literary community as well. So. And as I understand, you have a problem because Lisa will not sign here, right? <laughs> no, no, she has not. She has not signed here. She, she Recently. signed here before I purchased the store, but now she's now she's coming, coming back. Yeah. yeah, she has no choice. Yeah. Yeah. So you're stuck with me now. <laughs> it's a beautiful store in a beautiful town, and you should be very proud of it. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, great having you here today. Oh, I'm uh, thrilled to be here. This is um, so fun. We can talk about lawyers and. Um, Lawsuits and law firms and right. stuff. What, what year did you finish law school? 81. Me too, 81. Yeah. By the way, I'm four months older than you. Are you? Yeah. I've always preferred younger women too. So. How old uh. you get? <laughs> Meanwhile, my birthday is Tuesday. How scary. Yeah. I thought it was July 1st. Yes. Isn't that that's Tuesday? S that's Saturday. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm bad yeah, at numbers. I'm so bad at numbers. <laughs> I always forget how old I am. Well, well gee. But we're about the same age. Uh, we're still very, very young. Right. We finished law school the same year in 1981. You finished at Penn. Yeah. I finished at Ole Miss. Uh -huh. What was your first job out of law school? I was out of law school. I was a clerk. I clerked. I love clerking. For so a judge. For a judge. State appellate judge. For how long? For two years. And then went to a big old law firm, Morgan Lewis and Bacchius. And, in downtown uh, Philly? Yeah. How big was the law firm? I, huge, like a planet. Like, what was I, your I what was, was your specialty? Big, I was I was an employment discrimination lawyer. I did litigation, um, and Decker Price and Rhodes, and I th I'm just a, it's terrifying. Really, did you love it? All the white shoe firm like that you wrote about in the firm, except not a mafia front. I couldn't stand those guys. <laughs> so you went you went the big firm route. I did. I didn't have that option because uh, in Mississippi there aren't many big firms, and the Ole Miss Law School. Uh, sort of trained, and still does a good job of training lawyers to serve the people of Mississippi, which is primarily a rural area. Uh -huh. And I knew I was going to go back to my hometown, a suburb of Memphis, and uh, hang out in my shingle and start practicing law, which is really uh, should be against the law to allow somebody <laughs> who has not been properly trained to start suing people. Um, but that's what I did. I was the new hired gun in town. Uh, and I was ready to sue. Uh, you know, I had no cases, no clients, no, no gun, no ammunition. You know, I was, um, but it was. Uh, I got off to a rough start. But I never liked the big firm lawyers in Memphis or Jackson, Mississippi, because right. they were. Um, you know, they were big firm lawyers. They had plenty of money and clients and insurance companies and banks and manufacturers and people that that my clients who were all poor were in conflict with. And right. So I grew up on that side of the street you know, really disliking insurance companies and people like that and, yeah. and, and couldn't wait to sue them. You were right. I, I grew right. up on your side of the street, but then I defected to the rich guys. Yeah, where'd you come from? How'd that happen? I'm telling you. I think, well, my day, you know, it was if you were good in math, you went to medical school. If you were good in English, you went to law school. And I was like addicted to Perry Mason. So I wanted to be in a courtroom. And if you got decent grades in law school, you kind of got funneled into a big firm. And also, listen, I was really broke. I was, we didn't grow up with a lot, a lot of money. So I, I needed to make money. I you wanted grew up to, in downtown Philly? Yeah, South Philly. South, South Philly. Philly. Yeah. Describe know, the family in the neighborhood. It was really, uh, you know, it was very close-knit, warm, loving Italian family. My mother was one of not, the youngest of 19 children. I know. We were better Catholics than all of you combined. And God, what are, what are family reu reunions like now? Every Sunday, they would be at my house. It was crazy. It was all those stereotypes are all true. Was your dad Italian? Yes. Scottolini. It's, yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, look at my nose. I can, my mother used to say, we get more oxygen than anyone in the room. And if I breathe in, you could die. But it was a really wonderful, loving family. But interestingly, because you and I both love books so much, I, the joke that I always say is that there was one book in our house, and you think it's the Bible, but really it was TV Guide. <laughs> nobody read. Nobody read. It, nobody read. And it wasn't until I found Nancy Drew that I, God bless her, right? And I thought, I just got lost in books. I just, and I still am lost in books, and I love it. Most love of the family still here? Yes. We never go anywhere. We never leave. <laughs> Same neighborhood? Ex pretty much, yeah. 15th and Wolf. Woo woo. It's terrifying. <laughs> okay, so back to your legal career. You're doing right. employment discrimination law 
in a big law firm in downtown Philly. That sounds awful. No, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I, I love, as you do, I love law. I, I love the intellectual challenge of it and the stuff that you guys read about in the papers. You know, I love constitutional issues. And anytime there's a case, you can... Bill Cosby, for example, something recent. Everybody has a view. Was it ju- what is justice is a question that interested me from early on. And I think that's what you're writing about. I think it's what I'm writing about. And that's what I live. So I felt that there was justice, even though, you know, it was big firm versus little guy a lot of the time. And if I thought we were in the wrong, I told my clients to settle it. And they would. How long did you practice? Um, until my daughter was born. I think it was about four years, five years. And then my marriage fell apart at exactly the same time. Don't try this at home. My daughter's, like, my daughter was crowning, and I was getting a divorce. Like, I know, it's an excellent verb, though, so I have to say it. I can't help it. And, uh, and we, then I... We've got the visual, by the way. But, the, <laughs> but this is the part that, seriously, I have to send you some major love. Because I um, had always wanted to write a book. And when my daughter was born and I went really broke, for the next five years, I said, what is it you really want to do? And I was a huge lover of your books. And the firm, I actually ended up teaching, jump ahead, I actually taught at Penn Law School a course called Justice and Fiction, and I taught your book. And because it was so important in the chronology of legal fiction, that if you go start at Perry Mason and maybe Anatomy of a Murder, not only a time to kill, but I'm thinking specifically of the firm. The firm took the lawyer out of the courtroom. Until then, it was always a guy in a courtroom, and if it was Perry Mason, he always won, and the good guy, for some reason, was always in the back of the courtroom. You're like, you know, you did it, don't go to the courtroom that day. But anyway. um, (laughs) But you really showed in Mitch McDear this characterization of a guy that was human. He was flawed. We liked him, we rooted for him, especially when he became Tom Cruise. Then (laughs) Then we fantasized about him. But he, you changed legal fiction and you changed popular fiction. And I think it's so important that we give you that credit because I think it, I'll shut up in one second, but I think it's really important. It's a podcast. You don't have to shut okay, up. Okay, good. Excellent. You, you talk forever. You give, a, you, know, you give an Italian girl a microphone and you're dead. But that it's really important. I'm very mindful when I write books about law and about lawyers, that people are getting their ideas about fiction, about justice, about law, about criminal procedure, about legal procedure from these books. And so I think it's really important that people understand, like you got from the firm for the first time ever, for the first time ever, somebody in popular American fiction was writing about a fully realized person who happened to be a lawyer. And that person wasn't always in a courtroom, and he wasn't always perfect. And he even cheated on his wife in a beach, which, let me tell you, but we loved him and we got him. And I just have to say, I admire you so much. And it is so full circle and cool for me to be asked to do this today because you're just my favorite author. As simple as that. It's true. It's a true thing. You're very sweet and very generous. Uh, back to your legal career. Okay. Okay, you, you finished law school in... Um, in 81, right. the firm came out 10 years later, 91. Right. So you were still you were still practicing law? No, because I quit when my daughter was born. What year the, was that? Uh, 86. Okay. Uh, Scott, in the whole scheme of legal fiction, legal thrillers, okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perry Mason's huge. Mm-hmm. Scott Turow published Presumed Innocent in 1987. Right. Had a profound impact on me and inspired me to uh, finish my first novel. Okay, so I've always given Scott a lot of credit for that. Did it have an impact on you? Was the book huge for you? I loved it, but your book had the impact on me because I related to the character so much. Look, maybe because I was a denizen of the big firm and he was against the big firm. And also for two seconds, I, in the course, I sort of show people how, you know, popular fictions and for just people. He's a super nice guy. For I mean, it's John Grisham and he's really nice. Like what? So, but the point is, we're just people who write books, and we write them in a certain uh, social and legal and political context. And I sort of analyzed why The Firm, besides being a wonderful book, was also so of a time, you know, that it was after, think about the, the evolution of legal, uh, of law, you know, after Miranda, the Miranda decision, where the first time Americans learned that gee, a confessed rapist is not going to go to jail. He's going to be walked free because he wasn't told about his right to counsel. 
if you look back at that time, that had an enormous effect on the population. People were like, that's not, law is supposed to lead to justice. And so when the firm came, came along, people started to understand. And your book since then, the justice, we don't always get justice. It might depend on your color. It might depend on the money you have. It might depend on what city you're born in. It might depend on which amalgam of corporate, corporate interests you're fighting. And I think that's so modern and so true and so real. And that's why, it's, that's why the firm spoke to me in a way that nothing ever did. So when you quit, uh, did you plan to start writing? Did you have, did you have to, was, it, was it a lifelong dream? Did you study writing? Did you think about it as a kid? What, what made you start writing? My lifelong dream was to raise my daughter. And uh, I got to do that. So I secretly wanted to stay home with her. And I said, well, you always wanted to write and you're kind of good at English, maybe you can do that. And then for five years, I had so much rejection. I got reject. I sent things out. I got rejection. A New York agent said, we don't have time to take any new clients, and if we did, we wouldn't take you. And yeah. I was like, I see that guy at Book Expo every year. Yeah, yeah. He went, he's like, Lisa, I go, no, I, I can't hear you. I, I, I don't have time to talk to anybody. And if I did, I wouldn't talk to you. Did you keep all the rejection letters? Oh, I actually put them on the web. I put them on my website. Yeah. I, well, I haven't done that. I'm not that mean, but I, 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 <laughs> I kept them all. I have, a, I have a file that somehow you know, survived all the moves over the year, and it's got all of, the, all of my submission letters in 1987 to all the publishers. And Back then, you would submit to both publishers and agents, and we kept a list. We, my secretary and I, you know, all the pub, a list of 30 publishers, a list of 30 agents, and when they would send it back, we'd cross it off and go to the next one. And so we always yeah. had like 10 submissions long before the internet. You know, it's different now. And nowadays you don't submit to publishers right. because they, they have no time. You have to find an agent. What was the first thing you wrote? For, for what it's worth, by the way, I put those rejections up there because I think we are kindred spirits in that. And you, you'll see the spirit of this in, in his new book, which I loved, that I wanted people to understand that it wasn't so mysterious to be an author. There's no school you go to. You're just a, a lady who lives in South Philly and decides you're going to give it a try. And I wanted to demystify it. And I wanted to say, look, I got rejected too. Don't be afraid. So that's why I put them up there. And it, it kind of worked. But it was a little mean. <laughs> so was your, first, was your first effort at fiction a novel? I mean, I mean it a, was a, a novel. A, a, not it a short was a story. Novel and it's, it, was never pu- it was still never published. It's to this day not published. And I lost it because I could probably sell it, but I lost it. It's from the days when there were computers that had little... St- that square thing yeah. that they called the disc, but isn't a disc late, shape? Late, late 80s, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So was the second novel published? Second novel was published and was everywhere that Mary went and got nominated for an Edgar and lost. But the second one, by that point, I'd gone back to work now as a federal appellate law clerk because I couldn't get a job. Um, my kid was six, and I had gotten to like 28 grand in debt. I had credit cards. That's what I lived on. You know, I thought you couldn't get broker than broke. It turns out that you can. But... We lived, we lived well because I charged everything. And then I paid it off. Here's my key. Pay it off at the same time every month. And then they increase your credit limits, which was kind of great. The only, I want to say this, though, because I don't want you to think it's a sob story. So until my daughter was six, she had ne- she, I could take her everywhere where there had been, they would take credit. But in those days, McDonald's didn't take credit cards. They only took cash. So she was the only six-year-old in America who had never been in a McDonald's. So here we go. Fast forward. I actually sell a book, Not for a Living Wage. I have to pay back this mountain of debt. I'm taking my daughter to a McDonald's. And it's the first time in her life because she'd only been in Chili's where they have a menu and all this stuff because they get credit. So I take her to the McDonald's. It's not exactly like Chili's. You have to look up on the sign and that's the menu. And she looks at the menu, really. And she says really loudly, "Um, but where are the appetizers? And I got to say to her, oh, my, everyone, everyone turns around, who's this brat? I'm like, she's broke. She just doesn't know it. But it was not, it was not a, I don't tell it as a sob story. I tell it because sometimes you have to sacrifice to get what you want. And I, I finally did. So by then, by, by the time your second novel's published, uh, you finished the third? Uh, yeah, something like that. Now, this is about 1990, 91, so I have to look on the things. I don't remember. My birthday, I forget already. <laughs> But so, you're but you're you're writing almost full time. Oh, these days? No, no, back then. No, then I still had my job as a federal appellate clerk. I did that third circuit for two years, and I loved it. And I set one of the books in the third circuit, and uh, and then I quit after 
after I won the Edgar, they said, you know what? Now maybe we'll pay you a little more. And then I paid back the debt and like yesterday. And, uh, and then I got to have this amazing, amazing job, which I feel so lucky. And honestly, I wouldn't have my job if it weren't for you. It's what, true. What made you quit your, your, your day job, your clerk job? My daughter. Having the baby and getting divorced at the same time and going, I just fell in love with her. She's, it, was, it's so, it still is the most important thing to me. It just is. Uh, so it's, and now I write with her. I mean, we write these columns. We write for the Inquirer together. So uh, do you write every day? I do, absolutely. I, read two, I do 2,000 words a day. I'm doing two, two books, two novels a year, and the funny uh, book that comes out. So you have to do 2,000 words a day. Today I didn't work. I showered. I got my roots done, and I put on my good bra for you. This is... <laughs> hey, it's John freaking Grisham, okay? I pulled out the La Perla, you know? Do we speak the language? All right. Ask Renee, she'll tell you. I didn't ask her. I didn't ask all that question. Are you wearing La Perla? Didn't want to know, too. Too, too much information? Yeah, you know. Hey, writers are very open, aren't we? we so so uh, back to your process. Oh, right. At what, at what time of the day do you write? I write all day long. I, it, 2,000 words, if you start, I, have, I live on a farm. So I feed horses and chickens and dogs and cats, and then I start about 9. And some days I finish by six, but most days I don't. And I live alone. Does it sound pathetic yet? <laughs> Is anyone single? You write, you write for seven, eight, nine hours? Honestly, I do. Until I get the 2,000 words. Sometimes I get it by five or six, but most times I don't. It, I'm delighted. Are you kidding? I'm, I'm so lucky. I, I thank God every day. I'm so happy. Well, I feel uh, lucky too, but I can't write for eight hours a day. Uh, I can write for... Um, I write for three or four hours early in the morning, and after three or four hours of writing, you know, nonstop, my brain is pretty well mush, you know. It's, uh, I have to go do something physical, you know, go, go for a hike or something or go to the gym or, you know, whatever. I can't, I can't write for – I can't write till late, late in the afternoon either. Uh, I, have to, I have to get away from it. How early do you start? Seven. So that's good. That's an old habit. Uh, I wrote the first two books uh, when I was a busy – lawyer in, a, in a, a small, my own firm in a small town. Uh, I was broke, but, and, and my, my clients couldn't pay. Um, but I was busy and it's, it's tough being busy and broke. Um, I was also in the state legislature in Mississippi. And so a lot of people, this is a uh, mid eighties, late eighties. A lot of folks would, um, come see me in my office under the pretense of having a legislative matter when what they really wanted was free legal advice. Uh, and so I got stuck, and they all voted for me. Uh, once you get elected, everybody voted for you. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care how, what, you know, I, I, I won big the first time, uh, but there were still 35% of people who didn't vote for me. I never met anybody like that. And they all, and they all wanted something. They, um, they wanted a job. They wanted, a, you know, a driver's license or a passport. or They wanted Social Security disability. That's a big thing. They all want disability. And um, I got to where I really did not like, I didn't like to, I didn't like to go out in public when I would come home from the legislature. I didn't, I, you know, going to church was a hassle. Going to the ball game was a hassle. Um, and over a period of three or four years, I realized I really couldn't stand the voters. <laughs> and if you're involved in politics and you can't stand the voters, it's probably time to get out of politics. Right? But I, I, was that, I was that busy. Um, I had no time to write. My wife, young wife, was having babies, you know, and life was crazy. And I had to get up at 5 in the morning to go to the office and write for an hour or two. So you wrote in the office? The first, the first, the first, two, yeah, the first two books were written back-to-back -back over a five-year period from roughly um, 1985 to 1990, uh, that time period. When I was focused, I was in the habit of getting up every morning at 5 being at the office at 5.30, it was still dark outside, and making myself write at least one page per day. And I, that's the key to it. If you, if you can't write one page per day, nothing's going to happen. Some days you may write three, four, or five. Right. Some days that, that one page may take 15 minutes. Sometimes it may take two hours. But I made myself do it every day, and it, you know, I don't have that discipline now because I don't have to get up at 5 o'clock. Uh, but it's still an early morning habit. Did you outline it, or did you... Go as you, you know, figure it out as you go. I did not outline a time to kill. 
and I, and I paid I paid dearly for it because wow. the 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 manuscript once it was finished was almost a thousand pages, and it was a it had, ton, had a lot of mistakes in it, and by the time a good editor got a hold of it, uh, he cut a third he cut a third of the book, which was a year of my life, and I said I'm not doing this again. Okay, the next time I write a book, I'm going to know where the story's going. And and I, I have sort of perfected the outlining over the years to where it's a it's a process that uh, one of my one of my rules of writing is don't write the first scene until you know the last scene, and if you know the last scene of the book, it's kind of hard to get lost. I saw that you said that. I felt you, bad because that's the only one I didn't By the way, you, you're wrinkling do. your nose. You don't you don't agree with that, right? I feel, no, I I do agree it. I think I wish I could do it. You don't outline. No, in fact, people say, "Do you know how it ends?" I say, "I don't even know how it middles." I don't know. Are you impressed yet? Are you, you'll never read me. I just, but I think that. Um, How can you write a mystery and not know the ending? I don't know who does it. I go, oh, I want to see who does it. I got to figure it out. And I, and also since it's very much sort of every woman, I go, well, what would she do? Basically, what would you do? What would your friends do? And try to figure it out. You do have moments. I'm always anxious about it because I don't know if I have a story and I, I make a living this way. I mean, I've supported my daughter on this, and thanks to all these nice people, you know. You've made a bunch of money, Lisa, okay? Yes, well, that is true. Yeah. And that's the part that I thank God for. But when you have so much relying on it, you go, you can't be so catch-as-catch-hand. But the times I've tried to outline it, I feel like um, a little bit, it's like Mad Libs. I go, oh, I don't want to just fill in the blank. I will feel, I'm too, like I didn't know what I was going to say today. I only knew what I was going to wear because I'm a girl, but I had no idea what's going to come out of my mouth. So then I, then I, that somehow I work better with that. I don't know why that to is. To me, writing mystery is like writing, I write suspense. Okay. Um, it seems to me like you better know where you're going because you have to drop off things along the way, clues or hints or dead bodies or whatever to get to where you're going. You don't, you, you're shaking your head. You don't, you don't No, bother. I'm like, oh, he's so smart. I wish I would, I could do this. I, <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like sometimes it's a woman in a position. And then how does she get out of it? And since it's like even you get weird, you get into weird corners. I had a quick story. I was in a, had Benny Rosado, my woman lawyer, an old woman law firm. She's in a building. She's trapped in the building. The Philadelphia police are surrounding her. I go, how do you get out of the building? At least you should have done an outline. I bet John Grisham does an outline. What's the matter with you, you dummy? And I basically went downtown got in the building, walked around the building, tried to figure out how to get out. And I was, I have to stand up and tell this. And I was, um, I, went, I parked in the downstairs lot, which was an underground parking garage. And at that point, I'm upset. And I also become like very religious because, you know, you get religion at like when you need something like a pony or a divorce. Anyway, I look up and I go, please, God, what am I going to do next in this book? I can't get this woman credibly out of a building. And I look up and there in the ceiling is a big hole, like seriously, a large hole. So I pull up my card, which was a Ford Expedition. I climb on top of the car. I tell you this because I want credit because I'm afraid of heights. I get up on top of the car and I see what is in the hole. When I get really close, I can smell that it smells like horse manure. And uh, I'm like, what is this doing here? At this point, security actually notices. Lady, lady, get down. I'm like, well, I'm on top of the car. I'll say, I'll get down if you tell me what is in this hole. And he says, I'll tell you what's in the hole if you get down. And we have a little litigation, which I lose. Uh, I get down. Turns out that that hole is the, the roof of the parking garage is the floor of the corporate atrium. It's in Commerce Square downtown. There are linden trees in Commerce Square that are fertilized at the root through the service tunnel. And I'm like, well, that may be horse manure to you, but that is chapter four <laughs> in legal tender. And it's truth. What can I tell you, John? Wow. It's working for wow. me. <laughs> you really should outline. I mean, <laughs> You need to know where you're going when you start, okay? <laughs> Meanwhile, if I knew that, I would be divorced twice. He's happily married to a wonderful woman. So listen to him, not me. Believe me. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. At 1220, Trey, dressed like a student and hauling a bulky backpack, entered the McCarran Residential College in the heart of the campus. He saw the same surveillance cameras he had seen the previous week. He took the unwatched stairs to the second floor, ducked into a co-ed restroom, and locked himself in a stall. At 1240, 
He reached into his backpack and removed a tin can about the size of a 20-ounce bottle of soda. He set a delayed starter and hid it behind the toilet. He left the restroom, went to the third floor, and set another bomb in an empty shower stall. At 12.45, he found a semi-dark hallway on the second floor of a dormitory and nonchalantly tossed a string of 10 jumbo black cat firecrackers down the hall. As he scrambled down the stairwell, the explosions boomed through the air. Seconds later, both smoke bombs erupted, sending thick clouds of rancid fog into the hallways. If that story from John Grisham's Camino Island made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. What are you working on now? I am working on the next standalone book. I just did One Perfect Lie, and I'm working on something called After Anna. I like to sort of, I do the two types of books, these standalones, which are, tend to be more, some reviewers said it's more like family with a legal side plot. Side plot. And the other books, the Benny Rosado books, are a legal book story with a family side plot. I don't know. They make me sound very smart. I didn't think of that. But you, you've got one coming out soon. Yes, Benny Rosado, Exposed in August. Exposed in August. Yeah. You want to tell us about it? Um, that is, you know, you... You, you, you can plug your book on oh. my podcast if you want oh, to. Oh, he's the nicest to, We're trying guy. to sell books here, okay? You know, I have to tell you, though, when I my first came out and sort of somewhat, some reviewers started to take notice, they said I was the female John Grisham. I was like, <laughs> am I cross-dressing? It felt a little strange. <laughs> but I was hugely honored. And that's when I started this sort of female law, law series. So I basically have two lawyers suing each other. And, you know, it's like a cat fight with law degrees. That's basically what it is. It come, it's out in August. Yeah. Published by St. Martin's. St. Martin's. What are you up to? I should be interviewing him. You want to know about him, I'm on right? a book tour, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm finishing up uh, my, my, my book tour. We were talking about touring earlier. Right. And you tour a little bit, but not much. I Not, not as much as you used to. Uh, not as much as I used to. Um, and that's why another reason I'm, I'm so in love with you that you're doing this for bookstores because we love books, right? Uh-huh. And you're here voting with your feet and your dollars, which is what really matters. And um, I think independent bookstores are so important. And I think all bookstores are so important. They really do build community. And so that you're here, that you made the point of doing this. Um, I do love to tour because I like people. You can tell I'm not like... I'm ill-suited to being in my crate all year. Like, I hate it. So it's fun for me to go out, and I start hugging people, and soon, you know, it's just... So what's under contract? Three or four more? Uh, I, yeah, something like that. You keep, you keep a multi-book contract? I bought, a, I bought a treadmill desk, and I think it's a very good analogy for my life. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not complaining. It's great, because you sit a lot. We sit a lot, right? Yeah, way too much. See, that's why you go and do something physical. Right. Like, I never want to do anything But you're physical. walking the whole time you're writing? I, I'm pretty much walking the whole time, or at least standing. I've never... You can type doing that? You can type? You can... Well, I type lousy. And also... And I type slowly, so it works perfectly. And it will only go a certain... It only doesn't go above two miles an hour. So you, this is just kind of like... You're like this. You're like... She ran across the room. You know, she bolted. Then you try to find bolted, tore, darted, yeah. you know, all those good. Thank you, Todd. You know, it's <laughs> the, all, my whole life. I'm trying to find, you know, synonyms for run around. Everybody's running around. It's fun. How great a job is this? Any luck with Hollywood? Yeah. When we get buzzed a lot, we've got some options. There's options for one perfect lie. So, well, you know, we'll see. Other words, no. Well, I mean, I'm, having, I'm, can- I'm having no luck with Hollywood. Well, well, you've had extraordinary Well, 20 luck. years ago. 20 years ago, I had great luck with Hollywood. And for some reason, that, that, those, that model doesn't work now. I mean, we had four, you know, four, five, six big movies 20 years ago, and everybody made lots of money. And, and you know, that big cast, big box office grosses, uh, domestic and foreign, and yeah, the movies on TV somewhere tonight. And for some reason, Hollywood can't figure out that, that that's a good model. So I'm surprised we, by that. we have not made a movie in 15 years. And now the actions with television, Hollywood has such a right. herd mentality. If something works, you know, now everybody's running to television. Well, there are 400 television series in development. So that's going to saturate and, and get complicated. And who knows what the next phase is going to be. Although television is really good these days. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of good stuff. There. I love it. We're, we're, talking to, we're talking to TV shows and producers and talk, 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 but nothing, 
uh, nothing looks very promising. Do you write with that in mind when you're writing? No. Probably not. No. I've never never thought about uh, who would be this character. Right. Who would... Do you? I mean, do you think about no. it? No. No. What do you think about when you write? I just try to imagine something. and I, But it's funny to think about what you turn to a topic. I was curious why. Wh- why did you write about a bookseller this time? I love that you always, st- I said this to him, I love that you stretch every time and you bring readers along every time. And that's, to me, the most important thing when you're writing for a long time. You know, we've both been doing this for 30 years. You've got to grow. You can't just do the same thing and you've always done something different and this is different yet again yeah well you, you, you what happened after about 12 legal thrillers and you know they were they were all successful I, I caught myself thinking can I do something else you know right. and, and so as a writer you you want to try other things and so I wrote um, a childhood memoir called a painted house which was about my the first seven years of my life on a cotton farm in Arkansas uh, and I wrote uh, I had a bad Christmas one year, and I woke up. Um, <laughs> I woke up the day after Christmas, and my job is to always do clean up, okay, and and get all the wrappings and paper and ribbons and put them in black garbage bags and put them in the garage. For some reason, the family lets lets me do that, and so I was doing that, and I was walking. I had one bag after another, and I was walking to the kitchen. The kitchen counter is covered with. Food nobody's going to eat, and you know Christmas baking nobody's gonna, nobody needs, and bottles of bad wine nobody's going to drink, and bad booze it just stuff, and 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 the, and the garbage bags just got bigger and bigger and bigger in the in the garage, and I and I just got in this foul mood, okay, and I had a rough night too, is you know the day after Christmas, and so I went to my office and I said, you know, um, I, I'm going to make a list of all the things you would have to avoid if you could skip Christmas. The tree, the card, the parties, the, the you know the food, the decorations. It's a, it's a long list, okay, of stuff that we put into Christmas. And six weeks later, the book was finished, and it was called <laughs> called Skipping Christmas. And it was remember uh, it's, it. it's, it's I only, remember it. It's a, it's the only book I've written. I love I love humor. It's all it's all, it's always. I always put a lot of humor in the legal thrillers where they, where they don't belong, and, and I have to take it out. Usually they made me take it out. But if something, if, if I can keep some humor in a uh, story, it's, it's better. But with, with Skipping Christmas, I, I could be as funny as I wanted to be. And, and the book actually made my wife laugh, and she refuses to laugh at any of my humor, but she, <laughs> she cracked up with, the, with Skipping Christmas. And I love that book, uh, so you know, I, you know, I, I read it every year. I want, to, I want to do a sequel every Christmas. Um, and, I, you know, I love sports, so I did, I did a couple of football books. Uh, I was waiting on the baseball story. I love baseball. I was waiting for the great baseball novel. And it took 20 years for it to, for it to, to hit. Um, you know, a collection of short stories. Uh, uh, one uh, nonfiction book about a wrongful conviction uh, that I right. thought right. I loved. Right, that was story. wonderful. So, yeah, I mean, but, but I'm not going to get too far away from the legal thriller, and you're not either. Because, you know, right now there are about three or four of us in this country who are doing the legal thriller and doing it well, and there's a huge market for it. So my next question for you is, what is the infatuation in our culture with the legal system? Look at television. It's all murder, mystery, and courtroom stuff. I think it does come down to – I think there's just a great – what I love about this country – First, I love the diversity. I love the diversity of voice, and I love the diversity of views. So I think it comes down to that basic right or wrong. You know, what is the right result? What? And that becomes a question of, you know, in my course, I thought about how is the question of what is right different from what is legal, what is moral, what is ethical. You know, that analysis is different. There's a nuanced analysis, and I like to think about that, and I think people do too. So every day there's some headline, like we talked about with Cosby or anything else. Um, In fact, today, as I mentioned to you, this is the day where our Philadelphia district attorney pled guilty to extortion, bribery, and something else. Now, that's heartbreaking to me because I want—that's why I say the depiction of lawyers. I want people to not hit on lawyers— because if you hate on lawyers, you're going to hate on law. And if our public officials fall below that standard, we are we have to get we have to fix it. So I think it all becomes there is an interplay, and you're seeing it so much in politics now with law and life. Well, if there's a travel ban, and we're not going to get into the legalities of it, 
it means that people can't come in. And if it's your grandfather, how do you feel about that? And so I love the effect of law on people, which you've done since forever, you know, from the client to um, uh, the rainmaker. Perfect example. And by the way, I agree with you. I loved I'm surprised to hear you say they make you take the humor out of your books because I see humor in your books. Do they really do that to you? Well, they, they uh, yeah, they, they, they suggest I take out, you know, a great one-liner. Yeah. When somebody's dying, it's just, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't really fit, you know. So um, I, I stay in trouble with the humor. Uh, my wife frowns on it immensely. Uh, and and I, usually, I normally take a bunch of it. I put a lot of humor in just to irritate her because I know it's going to come out. <laughs> And if it survives her, it may go stay in the novel and go to New York. One reason I think that we're, we're infatuated with, with the law is because as Americans, we have all these rights. You know, we, we're very proud of our rights. We have the Bill of Rights. We have rights that, you know, and we do have a lot of rights, but oftentimes we don't have as many as we think we do. And if anybody messes with our rights or steps on our rights, you know, we get our backs up. Right. We're going to, you know, we're going to push back fight back or sue and you know if we have to because we we can really get you know bent out of shape if somebody steps on us and, and that's not bad but it's one reason we have so much litigation <laughs> and so many lawyers and and you know that's one reason i give another reason i think is because we have so much crime uh you know so it's a very violent culture with a lot of drugs and when you have that you have you know, a lot of good stories good, good police stories right uh, law stories, but it's, you know, we are, we have this insatiable appetite for stories about lawyers. And aren't you and I thankful for that? Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, and apropos of what you said before, too, I think I, I love the culture. I'm like, I have TV on, I have Netflix, I read and consume, I read all the time. And it's, I'm a fan of the story. So when I look at reality on TV, although sometimes the housewives of the, like Bravo is a little bit, has my number. But most of the time, I want a story. That's when I get lost. And when I think about the purpose of what we do, because look, we're, well, I was going to say, we're not that young. <laughs> but I go, wow, I never thought that I would be so lucky as to be here 30 years out. What are you doing with your life and why? And to me, I go, well, my life's work is telling these stories Initially, I kind of wanted, I think I wanted to show women that we could do these things. Like I was doing a little Nancy Drew. I always thought, Lisa, you're just writing Nancy Drew with a mortgage. It's kind of true. But I got away with it. Um, but the, the, the purpose of books, you know, we're in this temple to me. And all of these books around us is a story. And I noticed this after 9-11. After 9-11, I was so, like we all felt. And I read, I started to read everything. And I, Ann Beattie said, you know, a, a novel's a unified consciousness. I thought, you are really getting lost in the best way, connecting with another human being, feeling, living in their... One-on-one. One-on-one, on one. soul to soul. Don't know each other. Maybe you're on a train and they're reading in bed or they're in their comfortable recliner and you're, you know, on a treadmill. But the book connects you. And that's why book clubs are so cool. But more upon, that's, more importantly, that's why... The books matter. Right. We're very lucky not only to be able to write them, I think, but to be able to read them. And, and you share in that, right. too. Right. You share in that, too. Uh, we have a few minutes to go uh, to take questions from the crowd. If you would like to ask us something, we'll try to. Uh, yes, sir. The question is directed me to, to, to me because I do outline as, as opposed to other writers who don't outline. And the question is... Um, how much detail do you put in the outline? Well, you can't, you, you, a lot, but you can't. The main purpose of the outline is to, is to make you see the entire story and to make you uh, realize what subplots are going to be needed. And there are always four or five, you know, to, 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 to support the main plot and which characters you're going to need and which you're not going to need. You know, you can trim them up front. Uh, I literally say chapter one, write a paragraph. Chapter two, write a paragraph. Chapter three, all the way through. It's no fun because, it, you know, that's work you could be writing. But when you get to chapter 40, you're at the end, and you better know how it goes along the way. You cannot outline everything because it's the surprises are what make it a lot of fun. You never know when a character, you're going to need a character, pops up out of nowhere, takes charge of the story for 50 pages, and it maybe goes away. Uh, you, the twists and turns, there's no way you can predict what's going to happen 
once you're into a novel. And that's what makes it, uh, at times, very gratifying and a whole lot of fun. Comment? Agree. Okay. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Mr. Grisham. Yes, I'll stand up. Um, I know many of your books are set in the South. Uh, one of my favorite books, though, The Testament, also has the setting of the Amazon. So I'm interested to know what kind of research you do for your books, especially ones that are in a you know exotic location like that. Well, the research is um, two types of research. The travel research, like when I went to Brazil, uh, is a lot. It's very enjoyable. I was on that boat for a week in the Pantanal region of Brazil on, on a hospital medical medical hospital boat, uh, and uh, it was fascinating. Okay, uh, I was forced to go to Italy and spend two weeks eating and drinking great wines to to, to prepare for the two books, the broker and playing for pizza. Um, it's also uh, there's a darker side. I've been to death row in many states. I've been to prisons, to courtrooms, and you know things like that. That research is fun. Uh, when I get into the le- legal research, I don't really enjoy that. I, I have ways of cutting corners. Who does your research? I do it. I do it. But let me let me ask you a question. I'm interested to know one of the things I think you do so well, vis-a-vis sort of in, in the vein of research, is I think your characterizations are brilliant across the board. So it's not only the men, it's the women, it's also the children. How, where, what's the source of that? Do you, do you, how do you, how do you do that? Do you hang out with kids when you're going to write the client, for example, and you're going to have a kids, you know? I try to avoid kids. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the kid series, Theodore Boone is a, is a eight, is a 13 year old kid who right. thinks he's a lawyer. Both of his parents are lawyers. And uh, I, I chose that age uh, he, he'll always be 13. He's not going to grow up um, because that was a great year for me. When I was 13 years old, I had a really good year. Great in school, in the Boy Scouts. I was playing all the sports. I had great teachers, great coaches. You know, it was just a fun year. They, they separated the uh, boys and the girls that year, and that was an experiment, and it, it, it for the, worked for the most part. Um, but it was the last, you know, the eighth grade before you go off to high school. And it was a big deal back then to go off to high school and right. be a ninth grader, low men on the pole. Uh, but, but that was a fun year for me. And so, and I, I have vivid memories of doing things at the age of 13 that were all, all fun. It was the last real year of innocence, you know, before we went to the ninth grade and started playing football and chasing cheerleaders. And that's what we did uh, or tried to do. Uh, so I, I remember some of that, but it's very difficult. Uh, I find it very difficult at times to to keep the voice of a seven-year-old kid like in a painted house on the cotton farm, even though that was me and my parents and grandparents, and I remember those days. It's not always easy. I, I, I mean, I don't know how to do it. I listen to a lot of dialogue and read a lot. Well, you do it, you do it so well. Well, thank you, you. Thank you. Yes, sir. The question is, Mitch McDear from The Firm, have I ever thought about bringing Mitch back? Um, not really. I mean, I, I, I don't think about sequels. Uh, when I'm done with something, I'm pretty well done with it. With the exception of uh, Jake Brigance from Time to Kill, I brought him back in Sycamore Row. It took 20 years to get that story, and nothing happens till, until I have a story. I mean, you know, I'll say every year I, I'll tell my wife or I'll tell Doubleday, I got a story. I got a story. That means I got a book this year. It all goes back to story. And, and it, took, it took 20 years to get a, a baseball story. It took 20 years to get a story that would work for a sequel to A Time to Kill. And uh, Sycamore Row was um, more popular than other recent books for that reason. So, I'll, uh, I mean, there's, there, there are a lot of people out there who love Ford County and Jake and Harry Rex and those characters. And, and I probably will not wait 20 years before I go back again. Uh, they tried a TV series recently with um, Mitch 10 years later. NBC did it. You're shaking your head because you probably never saw it. Uh, it, it, it didn't work. It just didn't work, and it, it, it bombed. So television? No? I mean, the same thing. Options, maybe, maybe, maybe. But that's, I feel lucky. Right? I'm a book person, so I'm, I'm thrilled to have these books. I don't worry about it. I mean, I realized I several years ago, I, said, I, I, I cannot do a single thing today. Take Camino Island. If I gave the film rights away for zero, which I'm not going to do, um, and if I wrote the screenplay, and I'm not a screenwriter, but I can write a screenplay, for free, gave it to them, found a production company and said, here's the book for free, here's a screenplay, this is all I can do, go make the movie, it's not going to help one bit. 
it's not going to it's not going to move the needle. So if I can't help it or control it, I stop worrying about it. We we're supposed to write books. Yeah, that's right. And we're lucky. We're damn lucky to be able to do it. Yes, ma'am. The question is where where do we get our ideas? I go to, on the internet www. <laughs> Ideals for best-selling novels uh, <laughs> slash legal legal thrillers. Um, you, you go first. You know that, that's I, a very, that's a very common question. I mean, it's, it it's, is. It's, it's, it's probably the it's probably the question we get the most. Right. Uh, writers who've written a lot of books and who and who produce at least one or two books every year. That's a lot of ideas. Uh, so obviously we have hyperactive imaginations. I mean, you, that's the first step. But so how do you... Right, that's it. We have hyper... We're, and we're caffeinated. A lot of caffeine. Yeah. I mean, and it just comes to you sometimes. For me, it, I don't get any more than I need. Like, I, I hear about people have so many ideas. I don't... I get... Just when I'm about finished the last book, I go, oh, that would be a cool idea. And how great is it that... And that's why I say, you know, these books are formed of we're of you and so we hope that they appeal to you and i think we both very much want them to so it's just what comes to you i could be on the checkout line i could be cleaning the counters i'm all, i've granite counters i clean them constantly um right and that's when it comes like there's the idea so tonight this afternoon in this conversation you've mentioned the cosby trial twice you mentioned your district attorney pleading guilty, a case I've never heard about, okay? But if you peel away that onion, you're going to find some really good, bad behavior there, corruption, that you could take that, change a fact or two, fictionalize it, and you've probably got a real good story. I mean, that's – I just read the newspaper and watch the news and, and magazines. And, and when you watch the law, lawyers, law firms, courts, decisions, appeals – the material is endless for right. someone like, uh, we, and we, we're lawyers, so we, it comes easy for us to, to follow the law. That's what I do by nature. Yeah. Right. And I think it's what's so great, especially about what you've done, is that you really elucidated over the body of your work what it is like to be a little person, a normal person, fighting corporate interests. It is really, really tough. You were ahead of your time in, se- in pointing out that these inequities exist and saying to people, what can we do about this? You know, I'll never forget. Um, you know, in the rainmaker, I mean, or, or that law is a business too, that people, you have to go out and you have to get clients and like even rogue lawyer, you know, there's so many different, there's so many different lawyers as there are different people. And I think that's fascinating and I love it. Next question. Yes, ma'am, in the purple. Tough question. Uh, when I'm writing, am I reading in the genre or am I reading something else? You go. I read all the time. And I think at this point, we're both, I, I keep answering for you like, you know, this is why I'm divorced twice. No, he doesn't want that. No, he doesn't like beans. No, please, he's had a drink already. Anyway, um, sorry. <laughs> I, I forget the question. Oh, no, you don't channel anybody because what happens is I've been doing this for so damn long that my character's voices are in, where are you? I need to see you, are in my head. So I will write what they're saying. I'm not influenced by anything. I go, wow, this is another great John Grisham book, but I don't turn around and write like him. I read uh, when I'm writing. I have to read a lot of uh, nonfiction stuff that's, that's, uh, that pertains to my subject matter. And it's, it's called research. I mean, I'm, it's fun research. I'm, I'm reading good books about the criminal justice system or all the different issues or problems. And that's kind of background information. Uh, I, I catch myself, we all want to read great books or great writers. And I catch myself oftentimes reading fiction when I'm writing fiction. And I'll catch myself inadvertently doing something I wouldn't normally do because that's, that's what I'm reading. You know, a habit or something. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll pick up a habit. And so I try to stay away from that. I, I, I really try to stay away from fiction when I'm writing fiction and stick to the, you know, the, the research materials. Question? Yes, ma'am. Um, so you made a comment that you want for people to like the lawyers, and I thought it was really weird when you nodded your head because most of the time the lawyers in your books are terrible people. So I was kind of surprised that you nodded your head to that. So um, a question that I had for you was, how much thought do you give to how people are going to perceive like lawyers or different issues? Because I loved The Innocent Man, and I know you're um, you know, part of The Innocence Project and things like that. So I didn't know if maybe that's changed throughout your career, like maybe a little bit of activism, because that's kind of how I read The Innocent Man. Thank you. Uh, I, I realized a long time ago, and I knew this from practicing law for 10 years, 
Most lawyers are honest, hardworking people who don't make a lot of money. No one wants to read about those people, okay? <laughs> you want to read about the lawyer who stole the money, okay, and botched the case, took the bribe, maybe killed somebody, blew up the law firm. That's what you want to read about. You know, Mitch joins a firm that's owned by the mafia. See, once you, once you join the firm, you can never leave, okay? They're all crooks, okay? That's what, you, that's what you remember. If we wrote about the guy down the street, the honest, hardworking lawyer, we'd be out of business. So we, right, you know, right, it doesn't work that right. way. Over the years, the, the activism, um, I, I think with The Innocent Man, which was, which was 11 years ago, uh, that book really woke me up to wrongful convictions. I'd never... Even as a lawyer who handled a lot of criminal cases, I never thought about wrongful convictions. And for some reason, somehow I missed the first wave of big DNA exonerations in the mid-90s and late-90s. I don't know how I missed it, but I missed it, okay? And because normally I don't miss things like that. And I realized with the innocent man doing the research that there are thousands and thousands of innocent people in prison. And uh, it's, it's virtually, it's pretty easy to send a person there who's innocent. It's virtually impossible to get them out, and that's that's one reason I'm still active with the Innocence Project. And also, I've become more um, sensitive to or more aware of problems with our legal system, not just wrongful convictions, but mass incarceration, sentencing disparities, uh, elected judges. There's a whole list of, of, of issues that I have written about or I still think about. And I don't—you can't preach in every novel— you can, but the best books I think are, are the, the books where I take an issue, whatever it is, an important issue, weave it through a, a novel that's very suspenseful and, and make you think about something that you hadn't thought of before or think of it differently, you know, and, and get the reader involved. I mean, I love it when people say that they close the book and they, they thought about it, a, a, an issue in a different way. You know, that's, to me, those are better books. I can't do it all the time because you can't you can't preach in fiction, popular fiction, because you cannot impose your politics on other people. You can't you know you can't assume everyone shares your politics, and so and, and you know I, people resent it, and we're so you know we're so divided nowadays and so partisan when it comes to politics. You you don't really want to shove your beliefs on other folks, so I have to be very careful about it. Uh, that's why with Camino Island, there, there's no. There's no issue. There's no socially redeeming value. It's just entertainment, okay? <laughs> How do you think about it? I mean, do you think about issues when you... Uh... I do, and I absolutely agree with you. It's really people... I, I don't feel that it's incumbent upon... I want to entertain you, but I also think that smart people... Maybe it's Darwinian at this point, but the people who are reading the long form, the novels, you guys are smart. And you know an awful lot about more than when I started and you started about criminal procedure, you know, and, and legal procedure and courtroom procedure. So we sort of have to raise our game a little bit to keep you entertained and interested. And I think of what we're doing is sort of entertainment for smart people. I love books that I feel like I learned something from. I feel like that I learned from every one of yours. I've, and, and, and Camino, this one as well. Um, it's Be careful how much you believe of what I write, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious if you're an Elvis fan. I have to ask you. Yeah, I love Elvis. You know, I started listening. I didn't. I did study for today. I read the book, right? And I was like, God, you're going to be John Grisham. What's Elvis so like, got to do with Camino Allen? Because I started to listen to the last podcast, and it was you talking. I was like, he sounds, I love Elvis. I have an Elvis license plate. And I thought, he sounds so much like Elvis. And then you said you were from Memphis. And I couldn't let this end without me finding out if you love the king. And you obviously do. Sure. Sure. Come on. I right? met him twice when I was a kid. No. Yeah. No. Where? In Memphis. It, it was, it was not a, down the street? Well, sort of. Uh, uh, I mean, it was not unusual back in the late 60s, early 70s when I was in high school growing up. Uh, I lived just across the state line in Mississippi. Graceland was about five miles up Highway 51 in South Memphis. Right. He had a farm in Horn Lake, Mississippi, uh, just down the road. We would see him ride horses on this farm all the time with, with uh, Priscilla. Really? And uh, yeah, I mean, he was he was Elvis sightings were very common back How, then. Don't you love the way he talks? Will you just say, "I'm all shook up for me"? I'm all uh -huh. shook up. <laughs> Next question. Oh uh, my God! Yes, sir, over there. Question is, uh, this is they already they already quoting me from prior podcasts. Okay, uh -oh. so I could really get in trouble. Uh, now I have to be consistent, right? I tell you. Uh, um, and I, I, I said earlier that I write a legal thriller from January one to July the first six months. Uh, what, what invariably happens is after I finish 
the, the editing through the summer uh, and after Labor Day, I always get bored and I'll think about writing a Theo book, a kid's book. Last year, I didn't have a story for Theo. And after six Theo books, I'm beginning to uh, wonder about sustaining a series for a long time. You know, the, a 13-year-old boy can only have so many cool adventures, you know, um, in the law. So I'm, I'm, worried, I'm not worried, but I'm thinking about it. So I'll probably do Theo maybe every other year. I have a story for Theo this fall. Uh, so I'll write that book this fall. It'll be out a year from now and uh, maybe every other year. You ever thought about writing kids' books? No. no. <laughs> yes, sir, right here. I make your Sunday mornings fabulous. Oh, oh, aren't you sweet? You, it's your question. Oh, because I, deal with I, write the, <laughs> I write the humor column called Chick Wit. That's very kind of you. Thank he you. says you make reading the Sunday paper more exciting and more fun well, because people are not reading newspapers the, anymore. The more, the, here's the thing. More importantly, um, it's about newspapers. I, I started that column, a humor column called Chick Wit, because I missed Irma Bombeck. And I thought, and I feel like you, like maybe because we're writing about humor, we're writing about murder and crime and lawyers and bills all the time. We want, we need to have some fun. And I said to the, and I also missed. I wanted the newspaper to thrive. So I said, listen, why don't you just let a hometown girl write some, I can be funny every Sunday morning in 37 drafts. It takes a while. And I need that outlet. And they said yes. And so I just write about my family. And How many uh, words each, each column? 800 words. 800? Yes. And Once a week? They're collected in books now. I mean, the, the, that's what I have. I need a lifeguard everywhere but the pool. And I just want to make you laugh on Sunday morning because I, that's very kind of you to say yeah. thank you. But props to newspapers. Yes, ma'am. Question is, do we think about Netflix uh, as an outlet every day? Every day. <laughs> we would love to have a Netflix series. Uh, the Innocent Man is going to be a six-part series um, as a documentary film by Netflix with a big budget and, a, you know, the, the, the full works. It's, they're working on it now. Uh, I'm not involved in it, but it, 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 sh it could be something really good. Where they go, they go into the, to the community, the case, the file, actual footage, talk to the people who are still alive. So that's Netflix. Present company excluded. Who are our favorite authors? Yes. Who are you reading? I'm reading everybody, but I'm reading, you know, Jody Picole, Kristen Hanna, um, Harlan Coben, David Baldacci. Um, I read so, I also love humor. David Sedaris has something out. Uh, Augustine Burroughs, Liars Club, not really humor, but I love memoir. Um, I read, I think I read a, a whole, like, a lot. I had David Grant last night in uh, Politics and Prose talking about um, Killers of the Flower Moon. It's a, it's a best-seller nonfiction book. He also wrote The Lost City of Z. Right. Uh, great writer for The New Yorker. He's a lot of fun to read. Michael Lewis on the nonfiction side. Oh, he's great. Uh, most of his books. Um, you know, I'll read, uh, still of James Lee Burke and Elmore Leonard and, uh, Harlan Coben and Dennis Lehane and Michael Connolly. I mean, in Scott Turow, I enjoy reading, um, people I know, you know, it's fun. We all love the classics, but I think the, the more I write, the older I get, the more I, the more I read, the more I want to read people I actually know. We have time for one more question. Yes, sir. The question is, if we were at our very youthful ages of 62 and we'd just written our first book and uh, how we go about getting it published in, in, in today's publishing environment, would you go, I'd, I'd still do the same thing. It would still be submission, rejection, submission, rejection until that doesn't work. Um, and I tell aspiring writers, if you're, if you're writing good stuff, there's so many agents out there looking for us today, looking for good material, new material, new writers, uh, both on the internet and in publications and periodicals and magazines. If you're writing good stuff, you keep writing, you keep getting rejected, you keep writing, and somebody is going to notice if it's good. If you go, you know, five years, six years, seven years, ten years, and you don't get noticed, you may need to have a long, solemn period of self-reflection and, and kind of face reality. Uh, but, but, you know, every year, it's very difficult to get published the first time. But publishing needs new talent every year. You know, we are, uh, as we say, we're 62 years old, doing it for 30 years. Um, 
we need the next generation and, and publishers are always looking for the next generation and they'll find them. There's so much talent out there. Uh, and every year, several hundred debut novels are going to be published. Happens every year. So, you know, again, if you're writing good stuff, you're going to get noticed. We are out of time. Thank you, Miss Scottolini. Thank Thanks you. to the Doyle Sound thank Bookshop. You, thank you. Thanks to all you folks. Thank you, John. Thanks to my guest, Lisa Scottolini, and the great staff here at Doylestown Bookshop, to the volunteers, and to the great customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.